Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to church. Our Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is alive. The tomb is empty. Our enemy has been defeated. Our sins have been atoned for. And we no longer have to death because of our hope of the resurrection. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 20, uh, verse 1. And before we read the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to make himself known to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your goodness. Lord, thank you for the work that you have accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, thank you that your blood was sufficient enough to satisfy God's wrath. And how do we know it? God, because you raised your son. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And because of the work you've done for us, Lord, we've been adopted into your family. We have been redeemed and reconciled. And we have access to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would not just regurgitate these truths, but that we would understand these truths and that these truths would kind of shape our hearts and our lives and our obedience. That our hearts would be stirred, that we would be overwhelmed, that you would purchase us with your precious blood. That while we were enemies, you died for us. And Lord, I pray for those who might not know you, who've not surrendered their life to you. Lord, can you call them? Can you help them to understand the gospel as it's being proclaimed? May your spirit stir in their hearts and their minds and open up their ears, their hearts, their minds. And may they respond as they turn from their sins and they run to you and they cling to you and they say, my Lord and my God. Lord, can you make yourself known? Can you help us to understand? And Lord, can you help us to walk out of here in awe of you saying, what a wonderful Savior. Lord, you know um, our struggles. You know what we're going through. You know what we've experienced and what we're going to experience. Can you minister to us through your word? And can you teach us marvelous things? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So if... If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 20, verse 1. And so in our text, what we're going to notice today is that the empty tomb and the missing body of Jesus did not initially result in good news, but instead left Mary and left the disciples kind of confused and despaired. And the despair from, from, uh, of Mary and Jesus' death on the cross now was only compounded by the empty tomb, thinking that somebody took his body, stole his body, or removed his body. And we're going to see Mary's attitude change. Her disposition changes from despair to joy when Jesus calls her by her name. And she realizes Jesus is no longer dead. He's no longer missing, but he is alive. And my hope for us is as we look at this text that we would draw some application and that it may encourage our hearts. So let's look at John chapter 20, verse 1. It says this, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, 
They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. So right off the bat, we're introduced to our very first character, Mary Magdalene. And you're going to notice she's a prominent figure in the Gospels. Uh, We first read about her in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where seven demons were casted out of her. And then in John 19, 25, where all the disciples abandoned Jesus and everybody ran to save their own skin there, Mary with other women were at the foot of the cross observing their Lord being crucified. And now in John 20, verse 1 in our text, where is Mary? She's on her way to the tomb. In her distress, in her despair, in her sorrow, she's trying to comfort herself just by being in the presence of her Lord, even if he is dead. So even though her intentions were good of being in the presence of her Lord, her plan was not that good. Because Jesus was, in her mind, was still dead. And when she came to the tomb and she saw that the stone had been removed, her immediate reaction was either grave robbers took his body or the authorities had removed it. She never considered the possibility of the resurrection because how could she? What happens to dead people? They're dead, they're buried. Life is over and she is so overwhelmed by her sorrow and despair that the thought of a resurrection was nowhere to be found in her mind. And she immediately runs to the disciples to go get the disciples and we read about Peter and the other disciple that Jesus loved, more than likely that is John, and they made their way to the tomb. But what's fascinating to me is as we look at this text, Notice the many times uh, John, as he's writing this account and recording this account and and thinking back of what happens, notice the many times he refers to the linen cloths or the grave clothes. Look at verse 5. The other disciples saw the, the linen cloths or the grave clothes, depending on your translation. And then in verse 6, we we read about Simon Peter when he enters into the tomb. What does he see? The linen cloths. And then in verse 7 again, what do we read about? The wrapping that's been around his head was folded, laid aside with the linen cloths. It's like when something is mentioned in the Bible, it's important, but when it's mentioned in the same text three times, he's trying to draw our attention to the linen cloths. And so the question is, why is he drawing our attention to the linen cloths or to the grave clothes? What is interesting that in the Gospel of John, this is not the first time in this passage that grave clothes or linen cloths have been mentioned. Do you remember where else it was mentioned? John chapter 11, verse 44, at the resurrection of Lazarus. And when Lazarus was called out of the tomb, what did Lazarus have on? 
The grave clothes, the linen cloths, and Jesus commands uh, his people to unwrap Lazarus from his grave clothes, take it off of him. But where's Jesus' grave clothes? It's taken off and put to the side. And here's the point that John is trying to make. He's trying to draw our attention to the grave clothes to show us the distinction between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. When Lazarus came up from the dead and he was summoned, he still had his grave clothes on. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, his grave clothes was put to the side, which means that the resurrection of Lazarus was distinct from the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what would happen to Lazarus again? He would die, which means he would need his grave clothes again. But Jesus, on the other hand, was raised from the dead, and he would never die again, and he no longer will need his grave clothes. It has been put to the side. And this is what John is trying to draw our attention to, that Jesus' resurrection is distinct from that of Lazarus. He will no longer need his linen cloths. It's put to the side because he was resurrected. After seeing the empty tomb, Peter walks in, sees everything. He's puzzled. But then in verse 8, it tells us that the other disciple, and more than likely that's John, he he walks in and what does he see? Look at verse 8. What does he see? He sees everything and he... He believes. And the question is, well, what does he believe? He believes that Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus is alive. Does he fully understand everything? No, because look at the next verse. Verse 9 says this, For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so even though John believed that Jesus is alive, he does not fully understand, according to scripture, the necessity of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And even though John believes, he doesn't fully understand him and Peter walks away from the tomb thinking about Jesus' missing body. John in his mind thinks, okay, Jesus is alive, we just don't know where he is. Peter saying, thinking probably somebody stole his body and they walk away confused, puzzled, wondering what in the world is going on here. And John's thinking, I, I think I might understand, but not really fully yet. And then John now draws his attention to Mary Magdalene who stays at the tomb. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, I don't know about you, but I really appreciate John's honesty here. Like, like I love how he portrays himself and the disciples and those that Jesus, that, that followed Jesus. Like, what's Mary doing? She is weeping. She is filled with sorrow, despair, confusion. Like we don't see somebody who is confident in their Lord and Savior. Like think about this. Did Jesus not tell them that he was going to die by the hands of the authority, that he was going to be buried, and then he was going to be raised from the dead? Did he not tell them all these things? And he told them these things, and what does Mary do? She cries. She thinks it's game over. 
Because that's what death does to us. When we're confronted by the reality of death, we're so overcome by our sorrow and our emotions and our confusion that any truth that we have kind of goes out of the window. And that was true for the disciples. That was true for Mary. He's just portraying the raw honesty of humanity. It's like she either forgot that Jesus told her these things or she didn't believe that Jesus told her these things that this was going to happen. And she finds herself weeping full of despair. And as Mary is confused and in despair over the missing body of Jesus, we're going to see two angels appear to Mary, which shows us something unusual has happened. Look at verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they have put him. Now these angels initiates the conversation with Mary. Now, we don't know in what form these angels appeared, whether they appeared in in human form or supernatural form. Uh, We read in other parts of the text that every time angels appear to people, how do people respond? They're kind of petrified. And here we don't really read about her fear because she's so overwhelmed with emotions and despair. And that's what death does. It's, It's undeniably sad. She's missing Jesus in his death. She's now missing his body, thinking at least maybe I can spend some time at the tomb with him. And now he is gone. And she realizes that something is happening because these angels are appearing to her, but she doesn't fully understand. And with the angels' appearance, what they're trying to slowly communicate to us is this. This death is never the final outcome. Life does not give way to death, but in Christ, death gives way to life. And this is what's starting to happen here. And look at how Mary's disposition changes from despair to joy as she now finds this pleasant surprise. Look at verse 14. It says this, having said this, She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Let's just not move on. Let's just let it sink a little bit. It's so easy for us because we're so familiar with the text not to see the significance in the text. Think about what's happening here. Mary in despair, filled with confusion. So much so that she doesn't even recognize Jesus' face or voice initially. She thinks he's the gardener. 
And then all of a sudden, her despair, her sorrow turns into joy when Jesus calls her name. Mary. What's happening here? What's happening here is Jesus earlier taught the people in John chapter 10. He refers to himself as the good shepherd. The sheep, they hear his voice. The shepherd calls his sheep by name, and then he leads them out. And Jesus says in John 10, verse 27 to 28, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hands. Not even despair and sorrow can separate Mary from Jesus. Why? Because he is the good shepherd. He calls her by name. And the second that he calls her by name, all of a sudden her despair is gone. Her eyes are open. She recognizes his voice and she says, Teacher, Lord. Little side note, and I, and I find it interesting here the fact that Mary um, mistaken Jesus as the gardener. I think there's a little bit of significance in it, and, and here's why I say that. If you think about the beginning of the Bible and Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. He created this garden called Eden. Now, you see, you guys know the story. And, and what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? Go and take dominion over it, cultivate it, work it, plant it, name the animals, rule over it. And what did Adam and Eve do? They did that for a while, but then they got distracted in the assignment that God has given them. And instead of cultivating, instead of working the soil and planting and taking dominion, Adam found himself passive standing by as his wife, Eve, was tempted by Satan. And as a result of that, sin entered into the world. Everything was fractured. And part of the curse for Adam was now the ground will heal thorns and thistles and everything will decay and everything will be hard. And they're kicked out of the garden. We can just imagine the garden now being overtaken by thorns and thistles and drought and everything decaying. And this beautiful garden now is overrun by darkness and death and sorrow. But then Paul describes Jesus is the last Adam. What does he do? Or the second Adam, what does he do? He comes in and he does what Adam could not do. When he was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He resisted. Both in the wilderness and in the garden of Gethsemane. And after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, what is Jesus doing by all of these things? 
He's undoing all the effects of sin, removing all the thorns and all the thistles and all the decay. And now he is cultivating and he is recreating and restoring everything. This teacher, this good shepherd, is the master gardener that is coming back to make all things new. And he calls Mary by name. She recognizes him. And look at now what he tells us. Look at the assignment that he gives us, that he gives her in verse 17. He he says in verse 17, Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to to her. So Jesus is notifying Mary that he soon would be ascending. And the description of what happened really reveals just how much he had accomplished at the cross. And the purpose that he's accomplished it for his people. Like like, like notice how he addresses the disciples in verse 17. He doesn't say go to my followers, go to my disciples. If I was Jesus, I was like go to those losers who abandoned me and tell them to get your act together. No, what does he call them? He calls them brothers. In other words, something changed in their relationship. He called them disciples, apostles, followers, friends. And here in the text, what does he call them? Calls them brothers. And then something else happens to show us this this relational shift, the decisive shift that has taken place. Go to my brothers and tell them this, that I've yet not ascended, that I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Throughout the Gospel of John, over a hundred times, Jesus has referred to God as my father or father. Not once has he referred to God as your God or their God, as your father or their father, until we find it in this passage. Not only does he call them brothers, but now he says, I'm going to your father. I'm going To your God. Why is this so significant? Because of Jesus' work on behalf of his people, because of this glorious resurrection, now his disciples and those who are in Christ have been adopted into the family of God, which now that relationship has changed. We're more than just the people of God, but now we are the sons and daughters of God. God is our father, and Jesus is our older brother. Anybody feel like an orphan these days? Anybody feel like your father has failed you? Anybody feel like you wish you had an older brother who will come and rescue and protect you? 
and take care of those bullies? Jesus says, this is what you have right now. God has adopted you into his family, which means he has provided a way for him to, for you to be into his family. And now he's relational to you. He relates to you as your father. And what does a father do? He teaches you. He disciplines you. He protects you. He provides for you. He cares for you. He is near you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. And not only do you have a father, but you have a bigger brother who will defend you, who is with you, who will lead you, who will guide you. Like the relational shift has shifted because of this glorious resurrection. We're now no longer enemies of God. No longer strangers, but sons and daughters. And then Jesus gives her, Mary, an assignment. We're going to get to application in a little bit. I'm almost done. He, he tells Mary, I want you to go and tell your brothers, tell my brothers the news of the resurrection, the news that I've not ascended yet, that I'm going back to my father, your father, to my God and your God. Real quick, well, what's the significance of the ascension? Why does Jesus bring it up? Because the ascension points to the exaltation of Jesus. Think about this. The incarnation when Jesus took on flesh was a point of humility, okay? What do you do with babies? You feed them, you wipe them, you clean them. Here is the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence and who sustains and rules everything. What does he do? Takes on flesh and he needs humans to feed him, to wipe him, to take care of him, protect him. That was humiliating, but what's even more humiliating is when he went to the cross. There he's literally laying on the cross, probably naked, exposed, half beaten to death. And what do people do? They mock him actively. And as he dies, we read a Good Friday in Luke, some people walked away like beating their chest. Other words, you got nothing on us. We are in charge. We are the rulers of this world. That was the greatest humiliation of the creator and the sustainer of this world. And at the lowest point of his humiliation, what happens? At his resurrection, Jesus now is exalted. In other words, what we mean by exalted is how do we know that, that, that God has accepted his son's offering on our behalf? By raising him from the dead, by exalting him. And at his ascension, he will be exalted even higher where his position will be at the right hand of God. And at his second coming, his exaltation will be even higher. For there will be no name under heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. And Philippians, it even tells us that every knee will bow. No option in that. Every tongue will confess. No option in that. Why? Because of the exaltation of Jesus. And that is what Jesus is telling his brothers, that I am going to be exalted. Don't cling to me. I'm going to be exalted. 
I have accomplished what I needed to accomplish. I've paid the price. The work is finished. And now I'm going to sit on my throne and rule and reign for all eternity where all would worship me. And so Mary was given this great assignment, the greatest news of all times. And what does Mary do? She goes and she says, I have seen the Lord. He is alive. So, so let's stop here. You're like, okay, great. This is, this is, this is nice. Now, what does it have to do with me? I think here's three simple applications, and really it's the outline of the text. The first one, if you're taking notes, is this. The Lord calls us. The Lord calls us. Like, like, like think about Mary here. What did Jesus do to Mary? He called her. He called her by her name. And as he called her by her name, her eyes opened. She recognized him. She called him teacher. Our way of looking, Lord. Term of endearment, respect, and authority. And then I would even argue, what did she do after she called him? She ran to him and clung to him. Because what did Jesus say in verse 17? Get off of me, woman. Like, don't hold on to me too much because I'm not going to stay here. So what does the Lord do to us? The Lord calls us. Like, like 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says this, the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does the Lord do? He is our good shepherd and he calls us by name. Now, some of you are wondering, okay, what does it mean for the Lord to call us? Does it mean like he's whispering, hey, Bob, wake up. Billy, I'm calling you. No. What it means for the Lord to call us, it happens both externally and internally. Externally, you're hearing the gospel being proclaimed. The good news of Jesus Christ. And as the good news of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, internally his spirit is working and illuminating the truths of the gospel for you to understand you see what we're talking about here is a spiritual thing it is a miraculous thing it's not a physical thing because if it was i can just do one prop and you would say i get it but it's spiritual and both physical and spiritual has to be be present as the gospel is being proclaimed the spirit is working real quick and we've been proclaiming the gospel throughout our services from the songs that we've been singing the words to the confession and assurance what is the gospel the gospel is God's initiating work of salvation through his son Jesus Christ that lived a life you could not live you and me were all failures We've all sinned. We've all fall short of God. We all deserve death. Jesus lived the life you could not live, and he died the death you were supposed to die. He died in your place. And by dying in your place, he paid for your sins. He satisfied God's wrath because God hates sin, and he cannot tolerate the presence of sin. You want to know how much God hates sin? Look to the cross. 
And by the work of Jesus, he has redeemed you, he has reconciled you, he has brought you in to be accepted by God into the family of God. And what do you do? You simply respond, you simply receive what's been given to you. I think Mary is such a great example of a response. What does she do? She says, Lord, and then she runs to him. And even though as I'm explaining the gospel to you, what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's allowing these truths that from a human perspective we're thinking that makes absolutely no sense. And yet from a divine God perspective, it is the power and wisdom of God. And he takes these truths and he's causing your ears to burn and your hearts to become heavy. So when you're hearing my words coming out of your mouth and you're tuning out, that's not the Lord calling you. But if you're hearing these words and your ears are burning, your heart is heavy, that is the Holy Spirit convicting you, illuminating truth to you. And so the question I have for you is like, is the Lord calling you? Are you beginning to understand the gospel? And you don't have to understand everything fully. None of us do. Even myself. Like, like look at John. John went into the tomb. He saw nothing, and yet he believed. And then the next verse says, but he didn't fully understand all of that scripture that Jesus must be raised from the dead. Like, how encouraging is that? We can simply respond. And believe but not understand everything? Are you beginning to recognize that you are sinful and that you need a Savior? Are you recognizing that you've sinned against the Holy God and you're deserving of death and there's nothing you can do about it? That's, this, that's, that's God calling you. That's God revealing truth to you, stirring in your hearts. And my invitation and my plea for you is respond like Mary. Lord, and run to him and cling to him, knowing he will accept you because he bought you with his precious blood. Not only do we learn that the Lord calls us, what a wonderful thing that he's called us. Some of you are here and you're in Christ, not because of what you've done, but because the Lord has called you. He's revealed truth to you. And as a believer, we can celebrate that. And, in us, uh, and we can proclaim that. And as unbeliever, listen. Ask the Spirit to convict so you can celebrate that as well. The second thing is not only does the, the, the Lord call us, but the Lord adopts us. He adopts us. Well, what do we see? We see a decisive in our text, a decisive relational change no longer are the disciples just simply his disciples care to to carry out his mission but now they are his brothers and not only is it jesus's god but now it's their god and their father when the lord calls us he adopts us In other words, he calls us to something. That's why Peter says he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what does it mean to be in his marvelous light? To be a son and daughter 
of God, to be children of God. The relationship between God now has changed. No longer enemies of God when we lived in darkness, but now children of God as we live in light, adopted into his eternal family once and for all. And think about the guarantee of this. I know in our culture, um, in the 21st century, you can tech, well, you can't disown your kid even though you want to say it. But guess what? Whether you don't want whether you write them out of your will and you disown them, guess what they will always be? They'll be your children, whether you want it or not. And if God is a perfect heavenly father, look at the guarantee of our, of our salvation. Even if you are a son and daughter of God and you act out, guess what God is committed to? Being your father, which means he'll discipline you. Why? Because he loves you. Praise the Lord that he's adopted us into his family because of what our older brother has done. That God initiated all of this. And then the last one is this. Think about our text. The Lord called Mary. He shows Mary this relational shift that's taken place. And what's the last thing he does to Mary? He, he sends her. The Lord, as the Lord sent Mary, the Lord sends us. What does he send us to do? He sends us to go and tell the world that Jesus is no longer dead, but Jesus is alive. Even though we can't have the same message as Mary, we've seen the Lord with our eyes. We can certainly say we've experienced the Lord. Our God is not dead. Our God is alive. It's kind of like the, 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 um, the hymn writer, I once was dead now alive. I was in shackles and chains, but now I've been set free. My eyes have been opened. That is the message we can proclaim. Look at what Jesus has done. He has conquered death. He's defeated the grave. And may our words be, the Lord is alive. And even though we can't say we've seen him, we certainly can say we have experienced him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, that you have adopted us into your family, and now you have sent us. As we were praying, um, I know all of us are in different walks of life. Some of us believe, some of us don't. Some of us find us and ourselves in the middle, struggling, wrestling. So our meditations are all gonna be a little different. So for those who are believers, think about this, this wonderful thing that has happened to you. That while you were dead in your trespasses and sin, God called you and made you alive and adopted you into his family. And he is now sending you out to proclaim him. What an honor. What a privilege. And how encouraging is that truth that no matter what we face in life, whether it is trials, whether it's pain, whether it's sorrow, 
with this, even dealing with the reality of death and we feel like our worlds are falling apart, guess what has never changed? God's calling, God's adoption, and God's mission for you. So let's say hypothetically you lose everything. Guess what you'll never lose? Your sonship. Because God has adopted you once and for all. As everything else changed in life, you will always be his son or his daughter if he's called you and adopted you into his family. And it's all because of Christ. So just take some time right now and thank the Lord for that. As you look at some of your problems and the obstacles you face in life, look at that in light of God's calling in your life, in light of God's adoption and work in your life, and in light of God's mission that he's given you in your life. And then there's a second group of you guys. I want to be sensitive to you as well. Maybe you're here. You're with a family member. Um, Maybe you think you believe, but you don't really know whether you believe. All of this is a bunch of gibberish. Other than Jesus died and Jesus is alive. I want you to maybe ask yourself a couple questions. Like on what basis is God going to accept you when you stand before him? The kind of life you've lived, the kind of performance. And if we're all honest, as much as we want to put stock into that, that's not a very wise investment because if we look at all the good we've done compared to all the evil we've done, it might break out even. And yet God cannot even stand a hint of sin. God is like a consuming fire that anything that is remotely impure before him will be lit up. The only basis of God accepting you is what his son has done for you. But are you believing that? Are you receiving Christ's performance on your behalf? Or are you telling Jesus, nah, I don't need it. Or nah, I can do it myself. Maybe some of you are like, Neil, I want to understand, I just don't. Here's the good news. God will reveal it to you if you ask. Just ask the Lord, Lord, help me to understand. Give me your spirit, open up my eyes. Lord, I don't know if you've called me, but can you call me by name? Can you help me to hear? Can you help me to follow? Can you help me to turn from my ways and run to you? Don't you think God would hear you and answer you? Doesn't Jesus say you have not because you've asked not, that all you ask in my name will be given to you? Doesn't Jesus say like even wicked fathers will give their, their son, won't give their son a snake when they ask for bread? How much more better gifts would a father give you when you ask him? So this morning, I want to encourage you. Ask the Lord to help you understand these truths. Ask the Lord to, to call you and to stir in your heart so that you may surrender to Him. And if that's you this morning, um, 
and you feel like you're starting to understand, you feel like you're surrendering, you need help, can you come to us after the service? We would love to walk with you and disciple you and point you to Jesus. We would love to help unpack and explain and process with you. It's not something you have to do on your own. Holy Spirit, can you just move in this way? Just open up eyes, reveal truth.